News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we have seen the footage of COVID-19 vaccine rolling out the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna, and that is offering a lot of hope to people. However, it is also offering up advantages or uh, opportunities, you could say, scammers trying to take advantage of all of this excitement. So let's talk about scams that we might see and what to watch out for as vaccine is rolled out. Joining me on the line is Denis Gagnon, president of BCSI Investigation. Thank Thanks so much for being with us. Morning, Jill. How are you today? Very well. How about you? I'm great. Thank you. Uh, It it is uh, unfortunate that, uh, sorry, whenever we see something like this, we get excited and it's such a good news story. But uh, there is that aspect uh, of people uh, trying to do bad things. Yes, this started with all the uh, the equipment, the protective equipment, where we saw an increase in um, counterfeit goods. And to give you an idea, Jill, of the sale loss in 2020 from pharmaceutical uh, items, the worldwide losses was $15 billion. So that's the extent of what counterfeit goods can, can, uh, can be. So now we're dealing with uh, clear liquid, um, which is a vaccine, and now we're going to have to determine you know, if what's in the bottle is really what should be in that bottle. So are you talking about, or do you think, should people be aware of, I mean, unfortunately, I've seen stories about people trying to sell what they're saying is vaccine online. Um, Should people be worried about that or more worried uh, about being scammed in in another way, but vaccine related? It's going to get even more complex now. Interpol and Health Canada's put warnings out last week in regards to being aware of what's being sold online. The online issue will only increase. Now we have Pfizer, we have Marina. I mean, there's only Moderna, there's only two vaccines available. When we start getting into more numbers, then there will be more counterfeit goods available online. So the individual are going to say, well, I want to bypass the line. I'm not, um, you know, uh, in my 70s. I don't fit the criteria. So I'm going to try to cut and and get this uh, vaccine quicker. And he says, when there is a demand, the criminal element is going to get in and provide that that product for the demand. And are we looking at then criminals, like you said, using counterfeit, some other item, some other uh, uh, something that they're passing off as the vaccine? Or are we talking about criminals actually finding a way to steal, to, to, to find out where the vaccine is and to get it on their own and then actually sell what is the vaccine? It's going to be both. You know, they're going to clone whatever Pfizer and Moderna and other ones are going to be providing. And also they're going to create liquids. It's, it, you know, it, it, they can even counterfeit liquor and so on. So they're going to create a clear liquid. They're going to say is a vaccine, but may not be a vaccine. So at this point, there is only Pfizer and Moderna, and it's really well controlled. I mean, the government of Canada is doing a great job in controlling the distribution of it. Not all countries do that. And Canada Border Services now is, is being aware of what this is going on. But as you know, due to the extent of the pandemic, I mean, there's a huge problem in regards to the amount of vaccine that's required and being provided. And it's going to be a flood of, and I don't want to scare anyone now, but it's going to be a flood of products that are not going to meet the criteria. Obviously, Pfizer has to be kept really cold. So that's a clue right there. So, I mean, it has to be, you know, under very control, uh, you know, uh, 
circumstances. But if you get onto a different vaccine, you want to buy Pfizer online, it's not going to be the right Pfizer because it has to be kept extremely cold. So people have to make their due diligence like anything else. You know, they have to go checked with research carefully. The scammers are very creative online. They're going to say they did the same thing with masks in the past and any type of protective equipment. Then once you've done your research, you can check with your doctor. In Canada, it's not provided online. You cannot buy vaccine online. That's number one at the moment, right? Right. And then they're going to ask you for immediate action. They're going to say, well, this pandemic now, and this is another variable that occurred this morning, is what's happening in the UK, where you have the pandemic now, the the, uh, the virus is shifting now, it's mutating. So now the criminals are going to go on that and say, no, it's mutating. We have something that can take care of this mutation. So the, the, the criminals are very quick to pivot, to, to pivot on, on, on what's going on and provide a product to service you when it hasn't been researched and so on. So right now there's only Moderna Pfizer. There'll be more. But you cannot buy a vaccine that that is reliable online at the moment. Which is, it's hard to believe that people are even trying to do that or might see something online and think that that's an appropriate way uh, of buying a vaccine. Uh, I mean, I get what you're saying. It's one thing to buy masks or PPE, and if you get it and it's counterfeit and it's not what you ordered, no harm done, really. You're out the money and you don't have what you wanted. But it's very different from buying something that you are then going to inject into your body. Absolutely. This is the danger of it. And this is there is absolutely no way unless you take it to a lab and no one will do that after the order online to see what's that white liquid, that clear liquid is in that bottle. And that's the huge problem is that people will buy this thinking they're going to get a vaccine that's going to be effective. They also have to inject it. There's all kinds of, you know, you can have a really bad reaction to it. It's not control, but then you're going to add one more element as well, and I'm sorry to, to throw that in there as well, is that people are going to go on the dark web, and I'm not going to get into details, or you can get in on there, and also access the vaccine through the dark web. So, And also, there's another variable as well, is that some of those vaccines may go missing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there is control uh, of the distribution, but there's always people that will find a back way to, to, to steal some of the vaccine and so on, and, 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 and move it and sell it. And again, if it's not into a control environment, such as Pfizer, which has to be kept very cold, then it becomes ineffective. So we've seen a pandemic of fraud now in regards to the pandemic, and it's a very sad situation at the moment, but we'll get on top of it open 2021. Hopefully. Uh, If you're looking at at just uh, like taking uh, the dark web out of it, if you're somebody who's just using uh, the the same old internet that everybody is using, what are some of the tips that uh, maybe if you've not taken a cybersecurity course or or have these, uh, these guidelines as far as how do you tell, what are some giveaways that a website, there's something just not right with it? The main thing always is in the header. I mean, you may be a typo in the header, they'll shift one, they'll, they'll misspell Pfizer or they'll misspell Moderna, and then you don't catch on to it. So that's, that's one of the common ones. The HTTPS, which is a security criteria for the headers, if it doesn't say HTTPS, there's a good chance that it doesn't come from reliable source. So really, the header is the key. And then if you need to pick up the phone to make the call, and there is no phone number, there is no addresses, I mean, this is all virtual, there's a very good chance, Jill, that it's not, not real. And you mentioned Interpol earlier on, and some of the numbers are pretty staggering when you look at it, just the thousands of websites that are all associated with online pharmacies and online drugs and prescriptions, and now it looks like vaccine. Yeah, they, uh, they, they estimated the, uh, the latest estimate from Interpol was 
3,000 website. That's very conservative with online pharmacy. Like I said, pharmaceutical counted for $15 billion in sales losses, $15 billion sales losses in 2020. So you can see the extent of the online. And, and as you know, anything can be sold online. And the problem is now we're dealing with something that you can inject into your body. So that takes it to a totally different level. Are these the same groups then, do you think, that in the beginning of the pandemic or as this was all starting to unfold, uh, were involved in fake testing kits and, and fake that type? But it seems like they'll, they'll take any uh, part of this pandemic uh, where people might, maybe you're feeding on people's fear and try and scam them. And it's what's happening now is that those criminals, uh, once they've got the distribution channels, they can't sell anything, right? So now they're doing, they're pivoting from, obviously, the testing at the beginning. Now they were into the equipment for a while, you know, which is the mask and so on, the protective equipment. And now they're now shifting to, hey, we have a great opportunity. You know, the vaccine just got launched. The controls are in place, but it's not 100%. And it's it, in BC, we're very lucky. In Canada, we're very lucky. In some other countries, they're not that lucky because the controls aren't there. So but as, as, as the demand increases and people panic even more, and especially with this morning with this new 70% transmission in the, you know, increased transmission, um, you know, that creates a demand and that creates panic. That's a great opportunity for criminals and then they will respond by providing a product. All right. Uh, good advice and a good warning to remind people about uh, for sure. Denis Gagnon, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jill. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, Canada is stopping all incoming flights from the UK. That's being done for a 72-hour period to stop the spread of a new coronavirus strain. And this is according to a statement from Health Canada. There was also a statement put out by Air Canada talking about this new policy coming into effect. That is for all commercial and private passenger jets. We also heard from Boris Johnson saying he learned of the new variant of COVID-19 and that it is responsible for the increase in transmission in the UK. I was briefed on the latest data that shows the virus spreading more rapidly in London, the southeast and the east of England than would be expected, given the tough restrictions that are already in place. And I also received an explanation for why the virus is spreading more rapidly in these areas. It seems that the spread is now being driven by the new variant. There's no evidence that it causes more severe illness or higher mortality, but it does appear to be passed on significantly more easily. Joining us now from London is Crystal Guman Singh with Global News. Crystal, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. You're welcome. Uh, how are things, how is the reaction going? Uh, we just heard Boris Johnson saying uh, they don't think it uh, leads to more of a, a severe illness, but still some unknowns about this variant. Uh, how are people responding? Well, at this point, they're looking for more information, and it's really a twofold reaction. Number one, the, this is, um, you know, we, we know that mutations of viruses happen. That is common. We have seen it before with the virus that causes COVID-19. But in this situation, they're curious about, well, how fast does it spread? How easily does it spread? Is this why we've been in lockdowns across the UK for so long, but, you know, cases have continued to rise? But then there's also the timing of this. 
this and the timing of this new tier four and the lockdown for for London and the southeast of England. It's right before Christmas. It was a couple of days after the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson had said, no, we're not going to cancel Christmas. You're still going to be able to, you know, mix households for that five day holiday period. So the timing of this has people quite angry and concerned and, and back to honestly just being upset, not being able to see friends and family and more isolation and, uh, you know, not knowing when that isolation will end. So there is a mixed reaction, but it is again thrown people in the UK into this sense of limbo. Um, you know, we're seeing travel restrictions. There'll pro- likely be more travel restrictions. And again, people being told, like, we're looking at this, we're working to understand this, this variant, but we don't know much yet. So as it stands now, will there be any movement around as far as people uh, during the holidays or what are people being told to do in the UK? So it's very mixed depending on where you live. So uh, across the board, um, except for in Northern Ireland, um, people can, you know, that five-day plan of mixing is is scrapped. So except in Northern Ireland, you can still have those five days. Um, Everywhere else, not including London or the southeast or east of England, anything under Tier 4, they can mix households for one day on Christmas Day. Um, After that, Scotland, um, Wales, Northern Ireland, um, all going into a lockdown just a couple of days or either right after Christmas or a couple of days following Christmas. So it really is dependent on where you live. That's why, you know, if you go online, you'll see all these postcode checkers to see, well, okay, where's my area? What tier am I in? Um, but if you are in London or that tier four location, you are told to stay home. Do not go to work. Work from home. Don't mix with other households at all. And today we heard uh, government officials telling vulnerable individuals that they should be shielding. All right. Well, Crystal, thanks so much. Stay safe. And thanks again for joining us this morning. You're welcome. Take care. You too. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the clouds might not be on our side, but if you look up to the sky tonight, you might witness a rare event, Jupiter and Saturn in line to create that effect of one bright star. What can we expect? Well, Michael Unger is the program director at the HR McMillan Space Center and joins us on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Is the weather going to work at all in our favor to see this actually unfold? Um, Probably not. I'm looking at a clear sky chart, and uh, ironically, it actually uh, looks like it is going to clear up just before midnight. Um, but our window to see Jupiter and Saturn is uh, just after sunset, so after 4 o'clock um, till 8 p.m. here in Vancouver. But, you know, for anyone listening that might be, um, you know, outside of the lower mainland, um, you know, in that time frame tonight, uh, you might be able to get a chance to, to see Jupiter and Saturn. So where would be the best place then to go? And then once you get in position, where do you look? Well, of course, you know, uh, clouds uh, are the astronomer's um, worst enemy. Uh, so any place that you can get uh, away from those clouds. And then we're looking towards the south and southwest. Um, and, you know, it's going to be low to the horizon. So, of course, if you're looking towards uh, that direction, you want to have an un- undestructive view to the horizon. So, uh, and they're going to be bright. They're going to be the brightest things that you're going to see there uh, and low to the horizon. And uh, they probably won't combine into one star. They're going to be very close, um, but there'll be two very bright stars very close together, which is it's very unique. 
Uh, and and what exactly is causing this then? Or I know it's something that we don't see in hundreds of years. So, but is it is it actually the stars aligning? Yeah, so you can sort of think of our solar system and the planets uh, as we go around the sun like a racetrack. And we're going around the sun 365 days, and uh, Jupiter and Saturn um, are further out on that racetrack. So Jupiter uh, takes about 12 years to go around the sun, uh, Saturn 29 and a half years. Um, so as you think, as uh, we go in, in that lap, eventually uh, all three of us will kind of align. So, in fact, actually every uh, 30 years or so um, is when actually we do have a conjunction uh, like we're going to have. But it doesn't always happen that uh, Jupiter and Saturn are very close together. And um, that's where, you know, like uh, tonight is actually going to be quite significant uh, because they are going to be actually quite close. And if you go uh, way back into history, you know, um, a lot of people believe that it, um, originally this conjunction may have been what uh, the three wise men may have seen um, as their North Star, because um, in 7 BC, um, Saturn and Jupiter actually made three conjunctions all around the time of Christmas, and they believe that that um, may have been what uh, caused um, you know, the three wise men to see that, that North Star. Hmm, interesting. And this is also, it's, uh, is it lucky that we're having this happen at night? Because I guess it has happened in the past, but also during the day where you wouldn't really see anything. Absolutely. The last time uh, that it was uh, visible in the evening actually was uh, at Christmas um, quite a long time ago, uh, back in uh, the year 431. Uh, which I don't think many people uh, remembered. Um, and that was actually uh, December 31st, uh, 431, yeah. How big of a deal is it? I mean, it's there's there's a lot of myth and folklore attached to this, and it's always fun when we get advised that we can go outside and see this. But for somebody like you that actually studies this stuff and, mm-hmm. and, and is so much more involved, how big of a deal is it? Well, it is, it is a big deal because um, I find that when I look up at the sky at night, especially living in the city um there are there are the moon there are the really bright stars and then there's the planets those are the ones that really stand out and the thing for me is that the planets uh really pop uh and when they're in, in a position like this that's strange and when you look at it with your eyes your brain can't quite comprehend it because they're like hmm, those two stars aren't supposed to be there um and we when you take the time to like really look up and and see those two stars close together, you realize, oh, we're on a planet too, also moving through the solar system, and I think it's a really good reminder of um, of our place, you know, in space that um, we are on a journey, and you know, the planets are, are moving around the sun, and, and it gives us a sense of time, and I think that's you know, especially this year when we've uh, felt like time has been uh, still. Mm-hmm. Um, that even, you know, if we're stuck at home, you know, the cosmos is still moving and we're still on this journey and we're, we're going to come out of this. So, you know, I think the conjunction is a good reminder of that. All right. And if nothing else, it's an outing to even if it's just to go outside and look up at the sky. It's an outing, which I think a lot of us are craving. Absolutely. And you know what? Uh, it, Tuesday night is actually looking like a, a clear night. So it, it may not be um, uh, as close as it would be tonight. But, you know, Tuesday night, go out and look. Um, you know, uh, between 4.30 and 8 o'clock. All right, sounds good. Michael Unger, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, we know there are uh, no end to the possibilities. If you're in a position that you can give to a charity, especially uh, during this holiday season, there are many that would be very happy for the support. It can be tough to narrow that down. So we want to talk about one uh, that goes to a very good cause, the St. Paul's Foundation's Lights of Hope fundraiser. Some of the money raised goes to help support St. Paul's Rapid Access Addiction Clinic, which is helping save lives during the overdose crisis. And joining me on the line now is Terry McLean. And Terry is a parent whose child unfortunately passed away from an opioid overdose. Terry, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. I know it can't be an easy thing to talk about, but certainly does help others and helps to educate and bring more awareness to this. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about St. Paul's, the Rapid Access Addiction Clinic and how you're involved with that? Uh, I just really felt that uh, after the uh, death of my daughter that it was uh, a program that would have been really helpful for her. You know, a caring place to go, um, a place where someone's welcomed without judgment, um, harm reduction, um, you know, a physician, nurse, social worker, a place of hope and a place to hopefully scoop someone up when they're possibly contemplating recovery. Uh, what were some of the challenges you found or your family found uh, when your daughter, Brett, was dealing with addiction? Mainly a place to go. Um, you need support, you know, in the moment, at the time. Um, and often there just is no place to go. You know, things that require appointments that you're waiting for. Um, you just really need some support when you need it. And not to get into too many of the details or have you relive what happened, but I think your story is one that really does resonate with people with what happened in your family with your daughter. She had great dreams and hopes of becoming a nurse and having all of these accomplishments and addiction just, it just, from what I understand, it started quite early and kind of took over. She was always a very anxious child, like even from a very early age. Um, I mean, what I can remember is, you know, being totally anxiety ridden about being late for kindergarten with no reason for that. And um, this just amped up through the years of school. And by the time she was a teenager, um, she just really went off the rails uh, and with the depression it was very difficult um, to keep her in school I worked with the school and uh, they really helped me tutor homeschool her so that she could get everything she needed to get into nursing when she so felt and and when did when did Brett pass away it was October of 2018 So when you look at what's happening now, and we're so focused on this pandemic and the isolation that goes with that, and while we're still dealing with an opioid crisis as well, what goes through your mind with knowing what you dealt with and now with all of the challenges uh, that people must be dealing with today? Well, I, I think that in all honesty, many, many people are hidden behind the stigma There are many, many people with loved ones suffering and people don't talk out loud about it because of all the stigma. So it's it's more than just the obvious problem. There's a whole undertow of people who are suffering as well. It's 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 a very complex 
um, difficult problem and um, you know we're losing so many of our youth it, it, it's just terrible we're we're you know the population is going down it, it's a terrible problem and with places like uh, the rapid access addiction clinic and with uh, the fact that we we do tend to hopefully talk about this more now do you think anything has changed since 2018 or are there more opportunities for people to talk more about it try and get rid of that stigma and deal with addiction yeah i i do think it's improving uh but at the same time there are so many more people um being affected by this toxic drug supply so you know, it's um, if it's ramping up on one end, it's a very, as I mentioned before, it's a very complex problem. You know, there are many, many agencies doing good work and, um, you know, but it requires, you know, pooling them all together and places of recovery are very difficult to find. And this is an area that's um still lacking and uh, having a, you know, a place like RAC for people to go, a one-stop shop place, um, I just think is fantastic. What advice would you give to parents or family members who right now are dealing with what you uh, went through with your daughter? Well, that's a difficult question because, again, the services are lacking, Um just stick with it. Um, stick with it. It would be my um, whatever you can do to help your uh, loved one, um, support them. And I don't necessarily mean financially. I mean emotionally. It's, um, yeah, I, I don't know where to begin with that question, to be honest. No, that, I, I understand. I, I just know that uh, there there are families, and I think especially at this time of year, uh, families that are struggling. And again, as you mentioned, like the the stigma, there are people who I think are really reluctant to talk about it or, or think that maybe they've done something wrong when this happens to so many people of so many. Uh, I mean, it's not like it fits into one, oh, this type of background or, or, or we can pinpoint why it's happening when we look at, at families that from the outside uh, might look like everything's fine and, and people don't understand or don't even know what's going on? Well, I would suggest that there's a huge tide of that, that people have no idea. But at the end of the day, everybody knows somebody who's lost someone. It's either, you know, um, someone directly related to or friends of, or it's somebody who knows somebody. It's, 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 a, it's a huge population. Uh, so you would like to see people, again, uh, donate to, to the St. Paul's Foundation and, again, getting more funding for the Rapid Access Addictions Clinic because it sounds like it really can make a big difference. My daughter was involved in a similar type of program, and I really like the idea that it's something that's open every day and you don't need an appointment like you can drop in. I think this is a really important aspect of it. Um, my daughter suffered from um, um, uh, a benzodiazepine addiction as well, Other, uh, otherwise known as tranquilizers or Xanax. And um, notice that this place uh, covers the benzodependency. My daughter was in, and I found out after she passed away that she was um, 
waiting to get into a treatment center and they told her that she couldn't go there because of this benzo dependency. So I'm really happy to see that they are working on that. All right. Well, Terry, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this today. I really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Have a good day. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, uh, unfortunately, this past weekend, we learned of more outbreaks in long-term care facilities uh, in this province, uh, in Surrey, Port Coquitlam, and Qualicum Beach. And a lot of attention has been paid to long-term care. Uh, Many questions about why we're still seeing outbreaks, how the virus is getting into these care homes. Well, a new UBC study has some suggestions for how long-term care can have a better outcome, especially during a virus outbreak. And joining me on the line is Farinez lead researcher and UBC nursing professor. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, This is an interesting study because it looks at uh, taking measures earlier on, in fact, taking some measures even before they were put out there as rules by health authorities and how successful that can be. Exactly. Uh, The facility leadership team had some experience with previous epidemics and outbreaks like SARS and the flu. And so they essentially were very well aware of what the uh, information that was being communicated to the public back in December of 2019 and January of uh, 2020 about China and COVID-19. They knew what that meant. And so that's when they actually started um, uh, planning with respect to putting in place a pandemic management uh, plan in place for their facility. Uh, So it sounds like, and this is probably really oversimplifying it, but the earlier you put these measures into place and have this checklist and and evaluate what's being done, uh, the earlier you do that, the better outcome you have. Absolutely. I can give you a very simple example. The facility leadership actually started um, like piling um, personal protective equipment. And as a result of that, you know, when when COVID-19 was actually declared a pandemic in March and everybody was struggling with securing sufficient number of uh, PPEs, they, they had enough. For, for their staff and uh, to just ensure the um, sort of safety and the well-being of their staff and residents. And what about the staff? Because a lot of attention has been placed on other facilities where staff work at multiple places. But in this example, it looks as though they stopped that very early on. And that was a key factor. Yeah, so they actually started um, with their single-site employment order around March when when the um, sort of order uh, was put in place by the uh, government. And so that, you know, through our study, we actually found that that created some challenges for the facility. And as a result of that, uh, we've actually been, um, we've received some funding from Michael Smith Foundation for Health Research to essentially look at... um, the implementation of the policy and what are those factors that essentially could be improved to sort of make the policy better. And what else do you think we we learned from this in that, unfortunately, we are still uh, on a daily basis almost hearing about new outbreaks in long-term care. So what else can we do to try and stop that or, or know more about why the virus is still getting in and creating outbreaks in these centers? So one of the um, lessons learned uh, from from this research essentially is that our long-term care sector 
is struggling with staffing. Like there, there is almost this workforce crisis in, in the long-term care sector. I can give you a simple example around, you know, nurse resident ratios in this sector that are around like one <laughs> registered nurse to about like 20, 30, 40 <laughs> residents. And if you sort of compare the ratios in this sector to acute care, the ratios are very different. In acute care uh, settings, we have ratios like about one nurse per four to five patients. And so I think staffing is something that requires significant more efforts in, in the long-term care sector. One of the other really important challenges around staffing is that we, we are, there's very few research in, in this sector staffing-related sort of research in particular in this sector. Most of our research around staffing comes from the acute care sector, and it seems like we're essentially using the research from uh, the U.S. to make staffing decisions in the long-term care sector in Canada. I mean, that's such a huge difference. If you're talking about one RN to up to 40 people compared to uh, another scenario with one RN to four or five, that's such a glaring uh, difference. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, uh, like I'm, as a researcher, I'm really curious to know how we came up with with this decision. You know, where, where is the evidence that shows, you know, this is a sort of a... Um, uh, sort of a gold standard <laughs> ratio for long-term care sectors. I'm, I mean, it's like our decisions actually are supposed to be evidence-based. Right. And I think that, you know, one way we could essentially sort of make sure that we do that is through doing more research, staffing-related research in particular in this sector. And what about the issue of of keeping track of people coming and going? On the one hand, staff members, like you said, the single site, uh, making that, that's that's one part of it. But also keeping tabs on before visits were really restricted, keeping tabs on family members, maintenance people, knowing exactly who's coming and going. Absolutely. I mean, as as part of any infection control and prevention process, um, that that would be really important. You want to screen people. You want to know who it is that's coming to the facility. Um, you know, do they have any signs and symptoms and so on and so forth. And the facility has been doing a great job of that. Um, that's what we found in our study. And also quarantining and making sure that people that could work from home did work from home. Yeah, so that was another really important sort of step that the facility took to ensure that you know, those workers that are not frontline and not essential stayed at home at the stayed at home just to make sure that, you know, they have the, the facility is not centrally crowded. So, And so do you think we're going to see permanent changes or this could lead to that as, as, as we look now at what we've learned from this? I think I, I, I'm really optimistic that uh, there, there is some silver lining in all of this. I mean, because of COVID-19 and because of the struggles in, in the long-term care sector as a result of COVID-19, I think there are, there are significant, um, you know, um, essentially areas that we could improve on, uh, improve on. And so staffing is one of those examples that I just essentially sort of mentioned to you. Um, yeah, I, I'm actually very optimistic, yes. Uh, even though as we're seeing this now with all of these restrictions in place as far as uh, PPE, uh, restrictions on visits and testing, although we haven't really uh, gone to the level of testing as, as some other areas, but even with that all in place, uh, we're still seeing outbreaks in long-term care. 
Yeah, so as uh, I mean, definitely the, the study that we're, we've uh, sort of uh, done is, is a case study. So we're essentially just partnering with one facility. And so it'd be really interesting to actually extend this study to some of those facilities that are struggling to see how their practices and policies or the implementation of their policies are similar or different to the gold standard. And and learn from there, I, I would imagine, because I think we like to think now that everybody's following the same rules and the same things happening. But we hear from listeners and hear from people with family and long term care and workers that there are still differences from facility to facility. Absolutely. I can give you another example. I mean, in terms of staffing, uh, the, the guidelines are so um, essentially varying across facility to facility. So there is no one systematic and standardized staffing ratio or um, hours of nursing care or staff care for residents in long-term care facilities in BC. So it'd be really sort of that, that would be, in my opinion, as a researcher, that would be a really important area to focus on in the future. To essentially come up with that gold standard of staffing. What is that level and type of staffing that essentially is most effective in terms of meeting the residents' needs in these facilities? Because on the one hand, I mean, while it's unfortunate and pretty sad that it took a pandemic to to highlight the, what's lacking and what isn't working, maybe the silver lining is that we fix those problems. Exactly. All right. We'll leave it there uh, for today. Uh, Farinez, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the study. I'm really grateful for this opportunity to have a conversation with you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, how many people have sat down and thought, hey, that would be a good idea for a TV show. I should do something with my great idea. Then you never actually do anything. Well, that could all change. A Vancouver production company is now accepting submissions for a new unscripted TV series. And the best idea they get, well, that person's going to get $10,000 to make that TV show come true. I'm joined now by Tyson Hepburn, who runs Tyson Media, also the executive producer on Rust Valley Restorers, which airs on History. Tyson, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, Jill, thanks for having me. Well, what a great idea, because I think a lot of people probably have been sitting on or at some point in their life have had that great idea for a TV show. What kinds of things are you looking for? You know what, Jill? Uh, we're pretty open-ended right now. Um, we uh, are looking for uh, characters that are relatable, you know, uh, people that um, people could have a beer with. Um, they could uh, see themselves in them. They can relate to their, their struggles or their problems. And we're looking for subject matter that uh, is, is quite mainstream, you know. So as you might have seen our car show, Rust Valley Restores, it does very well because it's about um, a general theme like cars. Everybody has a memory in a car or, a, or some kind of, um, you know, connection with a car. So, um, yeah, so I guess just, you know, people, characters, themes, subject matter that are relatable to uh, people watching. And when you talk about a new unscripted TV series, so so you mean a reality show or how much of the idea then do people have to submit that they've already kind of thought through? So uh, just to clarify, so it's reality TV shows and documentaries. So we do both. Uh, And obviously the lines are a little bit blurred between like, you know, what is a reality show? What is a documentary? Um, But uh, yeah, in terms of what we're hoping for people to submit, um, we're hoping to get uh, one of four things. Okay. Number one is going to be tape, um, you know, video sizzle reel. 
um, something where they've kind of started it. Maybe they didn't get as far as they wanted to get. We can help by um, using some of the investment money to uh, hire directors, editors, um, uh, different people to kind of take their uh, video and make it good enough to kind of pitch to a broadcaster. So that's number one. Number two is access. Do they have access to uh, something we can kind of pull the curtain back on that the public doesn't necessarily have access to. So say like a veterinary hospital, a firefighter, um, you know, a department, something like that. Uh, number three is a, as, as a special kind of talent, a celebrity, uh, a host or a, um, a person that can kind of like host a show could be a celebrity. doesn't have to be, but somebody that's got some talent, some pizzazz, some charisma. Uh, and number four is uh, IP, intellectual property. So a book or something like that we could kind of uh, work with to turn into, a, turn into a show. So you need somebody then, you need people to have put some thought into this, not just submitting to you saying, hey, I think uh, this show about dogs would be great. Exactly. Yeah. No, no, uh, no harebrained schemes. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you had many uh, submissions so far? Yeah, we've had lots. Um, actually, yeah, I just hired a, a new development person. So um, I'm like, here, here's your first job. And we just literally dumped, uh, I think it's over 200 submissions on her desk. So she's, <laughs> that's her, um, that's her week's job, just kind of going through all these. So it's, yeah, we're finding lots of fun stuff. Now, can you tell us about any of them or is it still top secret? Um, you know, like, I, I, we don't want to get into that yet. It's, it's top secret for now, but, um, you know, I, I, I do, you know, encourage people to keep on submitting. We haven't, we haven't found the one yet. So, um, you know, um, keep submitting, keep submitting. And you kind of answered this in going down the list of the four things that you're looking for. But what would make someone's submission then stand out and not go to what would be, I imagine, the equivalent of a slush pile of a publishing house? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of those four things, you know, um, really, um, if they've got just uh, some kind of access to something really uh, special, incredible. Um, I mean, that's how, you know, when I started out my career, I partnered up with um, uh, David Paperni, who's an Academy Award uh, nominated producer uh, in town here. And so, you know, I got into his door by kind of having a, a bit of a proof of concept, you know, and then, and we were able to kind of be successful and sell a TV show, um, ba- you know, based on that. Right. So um, I wouldn't, you know, encourage people to kind of do the same, you know, bring me, bring me something that, um, that I can see. Right. So if you got a submission from somebody saying, Hey, live, I live in a rural property. Uh, we've created an underground bunker where 20 members of a family uh, live and thrive. I can give you access to that. Everybody uh, that does this, that might be something that would pique your attention. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you guys live? I'm coming over there. I guess they wouldn't have an, I don't know how I'd even find it, but yes, a hundred percent. That'd be great. And that would break the COVID rules if you went over there. So maybe don't go over there quite yet. Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they're going to send me the video. Yeah. <laughs> right. Of course. Good point. Good point. Uh, yeah, yeah. Especially underground. Not good. Yeah. Not a lot of uh, ventilation there. Uh, what yeah. do, do people do then? If someone's listening to this and they, they think, Hey, I'd like to actually submit, I think I could do that. What should they do? Okay, so they should go to uh, my website is uh, www.tysonmedia.ca um, forward slash uh, pitch Tyson. Um, if you just go to tysonmedia.ca, it'll it'll filter it'll filter you right through to the to the landing page, um, and then it's kind of got everything, all the points we talked about. There's a quick little legal submission uh, that my lawyers are making everybody sign um, just to you know protect everybody, and then uh, yeah, and then they can kind of uh, send away. All right. And you promise not to steal their ideas? 
I promise not to steal their ideas as long as they promise not to sue me. (laughs) All right. Sounds good. I'm sure uh, a lot of people will be uh, going over to the website and checking uh, that out. Tyson, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much, Joe. This is Mornings with Simi. We're all spread out. There's only every second pew. Um, everyone's wearing masks, they sanitize their hands, so it's kind of like, I don't understand why we can't go to church. If I can go to the mall, we were in Guilford Mall, and there's hundreds of people there. Come to church, find salvation, don't worry about a cure. Your soul is saved here. Well, that is a man who attended church in Chilliwack this past weekend. That's even though at least two churches in the Fraser Valley have been slapped with fines for violating COVID-19 restrictions. We're joined now by Vernon City Councillor Scott Anderson. He's advocating for places of worship to be labeled essential services. Scott Anderson, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill, and uh, thanks for inviting me here. Well, there seems to be uh, quite the debate continuing over this with in-person worship still under the restrictions not allowed. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's it's to me, it's an arbitrary closure. If people can be trusted to use common sense and if bars and airplanes and even a small junk removal company that I own um, are deemed to be essential services, why aren't houses of worship? And, and to be quite clear, I want to... Uh, uh, the motion that I'm presenting to council includes um, the caveat that uh, the whatever PHO is in place has to be followed, and the churches seem to the churches I've talked to and and the temples and places of worship with other religions uh, seem to be quite willing to to follow those those rules. So the idea, if they can follow the same types of rules when it comes to distancing and measures in place, as say a restaurant or a bar, that should be allowed. Oh, absolutely. If it's if if we can pack airplanes with people with masks, why in the world can't we uh, do the same thing with with actual social distancing in church? Uh, well, I guess one of the the objections to that might be that even though there have been exposures on airplanes, there haven't been any cases of transmission. Whereas I think we've heard from Dr. Henry in the past saying she's very concerned about transmission in settings such as in person worship. Well, I, I can't speak for Dr. Uh, Dr. Henry. Um, I cannot imagine why. If, if airplanes are close to each other with masks um, and churches are social distancing, why that would make a difference? Uh, I guess there's the question of making sure that everybody is following the rules and that it's different in a closed environment like an airplane when there are staff that are, that are coming by and there are specific rules in place. Uh, that uh, Could you police that in the same way in a, in a place of worship? Why could you not? I don't know if if people weren't if there weren't staff members to do that if people were breaking the rules who's going to be there to tell them that they're breaking the rules I guess those are some of the questions I, I guess I, I mean this is part of the senior governments um, who tend to view their opinions as enlightened and caring and, and vaguely intellectual uh, they're very enthusiastic about collectivist crowd control and I I, I think that it seems to be this view that that they believe that the citizens of government they govern are, are in some way galloping idiots. Um, you can hear it in the subtext of the reasons coming from the NDP here, and they're all inclined toward the idea that people are going to do stupid things if we let them into house of worships. Um, I can't imagine that people are going to abandon all common sense and, and spread the virus if they're in a church any more than if they're in a bar. I mean, people have the opportunity to break rules all the time, and yet we don't. We have the opportunity to walk into a restaurant, order a meal, and run away. And yet we don't, as a rule. Um, and I, I think this infantilization of society by both the provincial and federal governments is, is outrageous. And it's, it's frankly embarrassing to me as a politician. 
Uh, do you think it's uh, to break it down or is it oversimplifying to suggest that the economy is playing a big role here in that there are financial consequences to shutting down restaurants and bars and, and, and places that are that add to the economy and there's not that same financial consequence to stopping in-person worship? Well, uh, to answer that, let me, uh, instead of telling you my answer, I'll, I'll read a letter, one of the many letters of support that I've, I've got. I'm just going to read a bit of it. While I am deeply saddened by the comments make that you can still have church via Zoom or whatever, you don't need a church to worship, it comes as no surprise that people would feel that way, sadly, as they probably don't understand the role of churches. Some armchair warriors said, groceries are thoughts and prayers. Hmm, let's be reasonable here. Okay, where was the help last year for my family? The church was there for us when we were slipping through the cracks last year. They provided gift cards for groceries for our family when we needed a short-term solution and couldn't afford food. The church was so generous, I was able to buy a couple of Christmas presents at the store for my kids due to their generosity. Costco is packed, Walmart superstore, but small businesses and churches are shut down, effectively eliminating short-term help for people in the community that are struggling. So, I mean, and then she ends with, this doesn't make sense. And I agree, it doesn't make sense. Uh, so what are there you... Is, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, there is an economic component to churches as well, so... What what are you suggesting then or hoping, I know that uh, putting the motion forward, what would you like to see change? I would like to see churches deemed an essential service and um, operate under the same restrictions that that, uh, other essential services are are operating under. Do you think they're getting a, a bit of a bad, uh, with seeing uh, some of the churches, especially in the Fraser Valley, continue to operate and get fines? Uh, people are seeing that and I think are, are perhaps losing support. Do you think that's hurting the cause? I, I think it's not helpful to have uh, people disobeying the public health orders. I mean, they're in place for a reason. Um, you know, contrary to some people's opinions, this is not a fraud. It's a dangerous virus. It's especially dangerous to some demographics. But I think, I think with the same with the same measures in place, safety measures in place, it's it's no more dangerous than a bar or a strip club full of people with alcohol. All right, Scott, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, I'm sure Dr. Henry is going to be asked about this this afternoon, but thanks for coming on the program. Oh, thanks so much. All right.